0: Chapter Twelve of The Red Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Red Planet by William J. Locke. Chapter Twelve. A few days after this, Mrs. Holmes sent me under cover a telegram which she had received from her son. It was dispatched from Aberdeen and ran, "Perfectly well. Don't worry about me. Love, Randall." And that was all I heard of him for some considerable time. What he was doing in Aberdeen, a city remote from his sphere of intellectual, political, and social activities, Heaven and himself alone knew. I must confess that I cared very little. He was alive, he was well, and his mother had no cause for anxiety. Phyllis had definitely sent him packing. There was no reason for me to allow speculation concerning him to keep me awake of nights." I had plenty to think about besides Randall. They made me honorary treasurer of the local volunteer training corps which had just been formed. The members not in uniform wore a red brassard with G.R. in black. The facetious all over the country called them gorgeous wrecks. I must confess that on their first few parades they did not look very military. Their composite paunchiness, beardedness, scragginess, spectacledness, "'impressed me unfavorably when, from my Hosea carriage, I first beheld them. "'Marigold, who was one of the first to join and to leap into the grey uniform, "'tried to swagger about as an instructor. "'But as the little infantry drill he had ever learned had all been changed since the Boer War, "'I gathered an unholy joy from seeing him hang like a little child "'on the lips of the official sergeant-instructor of the Corps. "'In the evenings he and I mugged up the textbooks together.' and with the aid of the books I put him through all the new physical exercises. I was a privileged person. I could take my own malicious pleasure out of Marigold's enforced humility, but I would be hanged if anybody else should. Sergeant Marigold should instruct those volunteers as he once instructed the recruits of his own battery. So I worked with him like a nigger until there was nothing in the various drills of a modern platoon that he didn't know, and nothing that he could not do with the mathematical precision Of his splendid old training. One night during the thick of it Betty came in. I waved her into a corner of the library out of the way, and she smoked cigarettes and looked on the performance. Now I come to think of it, we must have afforded an interesting spectacle. There was the gaunt, one-eyed, preposterously wigged image clad in undervest and shrunken yellow flannel trousers, which must have dated from his gym instructor days in the nineties violently darting down on his heels, springing up, kicking out his legs, shooting out his arms, like an inspired marionette. All at the words of command shouted in fervent earnest by a shriveled up little cripple in a wheelchair. When it was over, the weather was warm. He passed a curved forefinger over his dripping forehead, cut himself short in an instinctive action, and politely dried his hand on the seat of his trousers. Then his one eye gleamed homage at Betty, and he drew himself up to attention. "'Do you mind, sir, if I send in Ellen with the drinks?' I nodded. "'You'll do very well with a drink yourself, Marigold.' "'It's thirsty work and weather, sir.' He made a queer movement of his hand. It would have been idiotic of him to salute. But he had just been dismissed from military drill, so his hand went up to the level of his breast and, right about turn, He marched out of the room. Betty rose from her corner and threw herself in her usual impetuous way on the ground by my chair. "'Do you know,' she cried, "'you two dear old things were too funny for words.' But as I saw that her eyes were foolishly moist, I was not as offended as I might have been by her perceptions of the ludicrous. When I said that I had plenty to think about besides Randall, I meant to string off a list. My prolixity over the Volunteer Training Corps came upon me unawares. I wanted to show you that my time was fairly well occupied. I was chairman of our town Belgian Relief Committee. I was a member of our county territorial association, and took over a great deal of special work connected with one of our battalions that was covering itself with glory and little mounds topped with white crosses at the front. If you think I lived a tom-tabby, tea-party sort of life, you are quite mistaken." If the War Office could have its way, it would have lashed me in red tape, gagged me with regulations, and sealing waxed me up in my bedroom. And there are thousands of us who have shaken our fists under the nose of the War Office and shouted, All your blighting, man with the mud-drake officialdom, shan't prevent us from serving our country. And it hasn't. The very government itself, in spite of its monumental efforts, has not been able to shackle us into inertia, or drug us into apathy. Such non-combatant frontiers in England have done a power of good work. And then, of course, there was the hospital which, in one way or another, took up a good deal of my time. I was reposing in the front garden one late afternoon in mid-June, after a well-filled day, when a car pulled up the gate, in which were Betty, at the wheel, and a wounded soldier, in khaki, his cap perched on top of a bandaged head. I don't know whether it is usual for young women in nurse's uniform to career about the country driving wounded men in motor cars, but Betty did it. She carried very little for the usual. She came in, leaving the man in the car, and crossed the lawn, flushed and bright-eyed, a refreshing picture for a tired man. We're in a fix up at the hospital, she announced, as soon as she was in reasonable speaking distance, and I want you to get us out of it. Sitting on the grass she told me the difficulty. A wounded soldier, discharged from some distant hospital, and home now on sick furlough before rejoining his depot, had been brought into the hospital with a broken head. The modern improvements on vinegar and brown paper having been applied, the man was now ready to leave. I interrupted with the obvious question. Why couldn't he go to his own home? It appeared that the prospect terrified him. On his arrival, at midday, after eight months' absence in France, He found that his wife had sold or pawned practically everything in the place, and that the lady herself was in the violent phase of intoxication. His natural remonstrances not being received with due meekness, a quarrel arose from which the lady emerged victorious. She laid her poor husband out with a poker. They could not keep him in hospital. He shied at an immediate renewal of conjugal life. He had no relations or intimate friends in Wellingsford. Where was the poor devil to go? I thought I might bring him along here, and let the marigolds look after him, for a week or two. "'Indeed,' said I, "'I admire your airy ways.' "'I know you do,' she replied, "'and that's why I brought him.' "'Is that the fellow?' she laughed. "'You're right the first time. How did you guess?' She scrambled to her feet. "'I'll fetch him in.' She fetched him in, a haggard, broad-shouldered man, with a back like a sloping plank of wood. He wore corporal stripes. He saluted and stood at rigid attention. This is Tufton, said betty. I despatched her in search of Marigold. To Tufton, I said regarding him with what, without vanity, I may term an expert eye, you're an old soldier. Yes, sir. Guards? His eyes brightened. Yes, sir. Seven years in the grenadiers, then two years out. Rejoined on outbreak of war, sir. I rubbed my hands together in satisfaction. "'I'm an old soldier, too,' said I. "'So sister told me, sir.' A delicate shade in the man's tone and manner caught at my heart. Perhaps it was the remotest fraction of a glance at my old, rug-covered legs, the pleased recognition of my recognition, perhaps some queer Freemasonry of the old army. "'You seem to be in trouble, boy,' said I. "'Tell me about it, and I'll do what I can to help you.' So he told his story. After his discharge from the army he had looked about for a job and found one in the mills of Wellingsford, where he had met the woman, a mill-hand, older than himself, whom he had married. She had been a bit extravagant and fond of her glass, but when he left her to rejoin the regiment he had had no anxieties. She did not write often, not being very well educated and finding difficult the composition of letters. A machine-gun bullet had gone through his chest, just missing his lung. He had been two months in hospital— He had written her announcing his arrival. She had not met him at the station. He had tramped home with his kit-bag on his back, and the cracked head was his reception. He supposed that she had had a lot of easy money, and had given way to temptation, and— "'And what's a man to do, sir?' "'I'm sure I don't know, Corporal,' said I. "'It's damned hard lines on you. But, at any rate, you can look upon this as your home for as long as you'd like to stay. "'Thank you kindly, sir,' said he. I turned and beckoned to Betty and Marigold, who had been hovering out of earshot by the house door. They approached. "'I want to have a word with Marigold,' I said. Tufton saluted and went off with Betty. Sergeant Marigold stood stiff as a ramrod on the spot which Tufton had occupied. "'I suppose Mrs. Connor,' said I, "'has told you all about this poor chap?' "'Yes, sir,' said Marigold. "'We must put him up comfortably.' That's quite simple. The only thing that worries me is this. Supposing his wife comes around here raising cane. Marigold held me with his one glittering eye, an eye glittering with the pride of the gunner and the pride, more chastened, of the husband. You can leave all that, sir, to Mrs. Marigold. If she isn't more than a match for any grenadier guardsman's wife, then I haven't been married to her for the last twenty years.' Nothing more was to be said. Marigold marched the man off, leaving me alone with Betty. "'I'm going to get in before Mrs. Marigold,' she remarked with a smile. "'I'm off now to interview Madam Tufton and bring back her husband's kit.' "'In some ways it is a pity Betty isn't a man. She would make a splendid soldier. I don't think such a thing as fear, physical, moral, or spiritual, lurks in any recess of Betty's nature. Not every young woman would brave— without trepidation, a Virgo who had cracked a hard-bitten warrior's head with a poker. "'Marigold and I will come with you,' I said. She protested. It was nonsense. Suppose Mrs. Tufton went for Marigold and spoiled his beauty. No, it was too dangerous. No place for men,' we argued. At last I blew the police whistle which I wear on the end of my watch-chain. Marigold came hurrying out of the house." "'Mrs. Connor is going to take us for a run,' said I. "'Very good, sir.' "'Your blood will be on your own heads,' said Betty. "'We talked for a while of what had happened. Vague stories of the demoralization of wives left alone, with a far greater weekly income than they had ever handled before, had reached our ears. We had read them in the newspapers. But till now we had never come across an example. The woman in question belonged to a bad type.' Various dregs from large cities drift into the mills around little country towns, and are the despair of mayors, curates, and other local authorities. We genteel folk regarded them as a plague-spot in the midst of us. I remember the scandal when the troops first came in August 1914 to Wellingsford, a scandal put a summary end to, after a fortnight's grinning amazement at our country morals by the troops themselves, Tufton had married into an undesirable community. "'We're wasting time,' said Betty. "'So Marigold put me in the back of the car "'and mounted into the front seat by Betty, and we started. "'Flowery End was the poetic name of the mean little row of red brick houses "'inhabited exclusively by Mrs. Tufton and her colleagues at the mills. "'To get to it you turn off the high street by the post-office, "'turn to the right down Avonmore Avenue, and then to the left. "'There you find Flowery End, and—' Fifty yards further on, the main road to Godbury crosses it at right angles. Betty, who lived on the Godbury road, was quite familiar with Flowery End. Mid-June did its best to justify the name. Here and there, in the tiny patches of front garden, a tenant tried to help mid-June by cultivating wallflowers and geraniums and snapdragon and a rose or two. But the majority cared as much for the beauty of mid-June as for the cleanliness of their children. An unsightly brood, with any unslovenly rags about their bodies, and the circular crust of last week's treacle on their cheeks. In his abominable speeches before the war, Gedge used to point out these children to unsympathetic Wellingsfordians as the infant martyrs of an accursed capitalism. Betty pulled up the car at number seven. Marigold sprang out, helped her down, and would have walked up the narrow-flagged path to knock at the door, but she declined his aid, and he stood sentry by the gap where the wicket-gate of the garden should have been. I saw the door open on Betty's summons, and a brawny, tousled, red-faced woman appear, a most horrible and forbidding female, although bearing traces of a once blousy beauty. As in most cottages hereabouts, you enter straight from garden plot into the principal living-room. On each side of the two figures I obtained a glance of stark emptiness. Betty said, "'Are you Mrs. Tufton? I've come to talk to you about your husband. Let me come in.' The air was so debonair, so unquestioning, that the woman withdrew a pace or two, and Betty, following up her advantage, entered and shut the door behind her. I could not have done what Betty did if I had as many legs as a centipede. Marigold turned to me anxiously. "'Do you think she's safe, sir?' I nodded. "'Anyway, stand by.' The neighbors came out of adjoining houses, slatternly women, with babies, more unwashed children, and elderly, vacant male or two. The young men and maidens had not yet been released from the mills. As far as I could gather, there was amused discussion among the gossips concerning the salient features of Sergeant Marigold's physical appearance. I heard one lady bid another to look at his wicked old eye, and receive the humorous rejoinder, which one? I should have liked to burn them as witches but Marigold stood his ground, imperturbable. Presently the door opened, and Betty came sailing down the path with a red spot on each cheek, followed by Mrs. Tufton, vociferous. "'Sergeant Marigold,' cried Betty, "'will you kindly go into that house and fetch out Corporal Tufton's kit-bag?' "'Very good, madam,' said Marigold. "'Sergeant or no sergeant,' cried Mrs. Tufton, squaring her elbows and barring his way, "'Nobody's coming into my house to touch any of my husband's property. "'Really what she said I cannot record. "'The British Tommy I know upside down, inside out. "'I could talk to you about him for the week together. "'The ordinary soldier's wife, good, straight, heroic soul, "'I know as well, and profoundly admire as I do the ordinary wife of a brother officer. "'And I could tell you what she thinks and feels in her own language.' but the class whence Mrs. Tufton proceeded is out of my social ken. She was stale, drunk. She had, doubtless, a vile headache. Probably she felt twinges of remorse and apprehension of possible police interference. As a counter-irritant to this, she had worked herself into an astounding temper. She would give up none of her husband's belongings. She would have the law on them if they tried." Bad enough it was for her husband to come home after a year's desertion, leaving her penniless, and the moment he set eyes on her begin to knock her about, but four sergeants suffering under a blight, and characterless females masquerading as hospital nurses to come and ride roughshod over an honest working woman was past endurance. Thus I paraphrase my memory of the lady's torrential speech. "'Lay your hand on me,' she cried, "'and I'll summon you for assault.' As Marigold could not pass her, without laying hands on her, and as the laying of hands on her, no matter how lightly, would indubitably have constituted an assault in the eyes of the law, Marigold stiffly confronted her and tried to argue. The neighbors listened in sardonic amusement. Betty stood by, with the spots burning on her cheek, clenching her slender, capable fingers, furious at defeat. I was condemned to sit in the car a few yards off, an anxious spectator. In a moment's lull of the argument, Betty interposed. "'Every woman here knows what you have done. You ought to be ashamed of yourself.' "'And you ought to be ashamed of yourself,' Mrs. Tufton retorted, "'taking an honest woman's husband away from her.' "'It was time to interfere.' I called out. "'Betty, let us get back. I'll fix the man up with everything he wants.' at the moment of her turning to me a telegraph boy hopped from his bicycle on the off-side of the car and touched his cap i've a telegram for mrs connor sir i recognize the car and i think that's the lady so instead of going on to the house i cut him short yes that was mrs connor of telford lodge he dodged round the car and entering the garden path handed the orange-colored envelope to betty she took it from him absent-mindedly her heart and soul engaged in the battle with Mrs. Tufton. The boy stood patient for a second or two. Any answer, ma'am? She turned so that I could see her face in profile, and impatiently opened the envelope and glanced at the message. Then she stiffened, seeming in a curious way to become many inches taller and grow deadly white. The paper dropped from her hand. Marigold picked it up. The diversion of the telegraph boy had checked Mrs. Tufton's eloquence, and compelled the idle interest of the neighbors. I cried out from the car, "'What's the matter?' But I don't think Betty heard me. She recovered herself, took the telegram from Marigold, and showed it to the woman. "'Read it,' said Betty, in a strange, hard voice. "'This is to tell me that my husband was killed yesterday in France.' Go on your knees and thank God that you have a brave husband, still alive, and pray that you may be worthy of him. She went into the house, and in a moment reappeared like a ghost of steel, carrying the disputed canvas kit-bag over her shoulder. The woman stared open-mouthed and said nothing. Marigold came forward to relieve Betty of her burden, but she waved him imperiously away, Passed him and, opening the car door, threw the bag at my feet. Not one of the rough crowd moved a foot or uttered a sound save a baby in arms two doors off, who cut the silence with a sickly wail and was immediately hushed by its mother. Betty turned to the attendant Marigold. You can drive me home. She sat by my side. Marigold took the wheel in front and drove us. She sought for my hand, held it in an iron grip, and said not a word. It was but five minutes' run at the pace which Marigold, time-worn master of crises of life and death, put the car. Betty held herself rigid, staring straight in front of her, and striving in vain to stifle horrible little sounds that would break through her tightly closed lips. When we pulled up at her door, she said queerly, Forgive me, I'm a damned little coward, and she bolted from the car into the house. End of chapter 12